As the new year begins, the team here at Sina Unseen Aloud have taken a look back over last year and the favourite articles that have appeared either on the Seen and Unseen Aloud podcast or on the Seen and Unseen website. Sit back and enjoy a curated stroll down memory lane and see if we've chosen your top picks. This New Year compilation has been put together by Belle Tyndall, writer for the Centre for Cultural Witness and co-host of the re-enchanting podcast for Seen and Unseen. Belle says, I tend to love anything that Roger Bretherton writes. His clear and compassionate voice has the ability to cut through so much noise. But his piece asking why do films portray Christians as crazy is my favourite so far. In this piece, he tackles a cultural habit head-on with humour, grace and a whole lot of wisdom. Why do films portray Christians as crazy? By Roger Brotherton. We knew we were in trouble when he started quoting the Bible. There is one rule we should all follow in a zombie apocalypse. It is not to trust the isolated community of believers huddled around a Bible-quoting preacher. You know the plot line, the one that never occurs in Star Trek. The crew of the USS Enterprise land on a paradise-like planet only to discover that everything is exactly as it seems. No, the rules of genre television must be upheld. If it seems too good to be true, it probably is. This was the strong suspicion my eldest child and I immediately leapt to while watching season one, episode eight of HBO's The Last of Us. If you haven't seen it, it's a zombie apocalypse drama. It bit like The Walking Dead, but with more giraffes and fewer zombies. Is it a virus? Is it radiation? No, it's a fungus that has zombified the masses. Starting with a few isolated infections here and there, it rapidly mushroomed, I guess, to turn the placid citizens of the world into manic flesh eaters. All I'm saying is, keep applying the antifungal toenail cream. It may be the only thing standing between us and the collapse of civilization as we know it. So when episode 8 opened with a previously unknown character quoting the Bible to a cheerful flock hiding at a diner, we knew things weren't going to turn out well. The signs were all there. He was almost definitely a paedophile, possibly a murderer, and very likely a cannibal. As it turned out, we'd hit a perfect straight. Three for three. He was all of them. I probably should have issued a spoiler warning for that one, but to be honest, if you didn't see it coming, The Last of Us probably isn't for you. You'd probably be happier watching something more sedate. Silent Witness, anyone? Needless to say, the episode provoked no small amount of theological commentary in our household, mainly querying why it is that anyone exhibiting even a modicum of Christian belief in shows like this almost always turns out to be completely unhinged. Why do the righteous always have something wrong with them? Why are the God-fearing always so goddamn weird? Just to be clear, I'm not a murderer, nor a paedophile, nor a cannibal, and I have no plans. 
But somehow, the prejudice that Christians must be crazy has come to influence how I view my own spiritual history. I have inadvertently imbibed the simple naturalistic logic that if I am a Christian, then there is something wrong with me. Some part of me shakes hands with Freud and retrospectively attributes my conversion to neurosis, a coping strategy, a crutch. The assumption that the only reason I would become something so unusual, so out of step with the people I spend most of our time with, is that I'm weird. Quietly, without realising it, that is how I've come to view it. I need God because I'm weak. Of course, religion can and often is used as a coping strategy. Leading psychologists of religion, like Kenneth Pargament, have made entire careers out of studying this phenomenon. For several decades, he and his collaborators have demonstrated pretty conclusively that people use religion and spirituality as potent sources of coping with the pain of life. From this perspective, religious conversion can be viewed as a transformation of significance. When the things we previously relied on to give us a sense of meaning and stability fail us, when our adjustment to life falls apart and cannot be put back together again, we give up trying to conserve what was previously meaningful and instead take a transformative leap toward a new view of what matters to us. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. When the going gets too tough, some people turn to Jesus. But there are many ways we can use religion to cope. And over the years, Pargament and his collaborators have identified a few of them. Some people defer everything to God. They cope by thinking God will do everything for them. They plead for him to intervene. Others are self-reliant. They may believe in God, but they don't expect much from him. For them, prayer is more like therapeutic meditation than anything medically effective. Others cope in a collaborative way. They don't leave it all to God, nor do they think everything centres on them. They take responsibility for their lives, but view God as a companion, a collaborator, a conversation partner through all the vicissitudes of life. It probably comes as no surprise that in studies of religious people dealing with chronic illness, these styles of coping significantly predict prognosis over time. There are many ways it can help us, and some of them are more admirable and effective than others. Those who leave it all to God usually do worse. Those who think it's all down to them do better. And those who pray and take the pills do best. Coping with a painful and bewildering world is undoubtedly one of the benefits of religious belief. It's one of the things it does for us. But it is not what religion is at its core. It may be a function of belief, but not its essence. As a 12-year-old boy, lurking at the back of an old Methodist church, waiting in silence for the possibility of something sacred to be unconcealed, I was not the kind of child anyone at school would ever admire. Lonely, bullied, ignored relegated to the corner of the playground, reserved for the outcasts and untouchables. 
the overly sensitive gay kid, the boorish tractor enthusiast, and the Dungeons and Dragons players. When I revisit the moment of my first truly transcendent and mystical experience of God, it's tempting to write it off as an imaginative invention designed to anaesthetise the pain of social exclusion. I needed it to be true, so I made it up. Yet there is more to it than that. That first intimation of divine presence was the beginning of a lifelong quest to experience more. It was the teaser trailer of a movie I was yet to see, a tiny taster from an infinite menu. And in the years that followed, I pursued it. To begin with, that strange sense of presence was elusive. I couldn't generate it under my own steam, but ran across it every few months, in a small group, a church service, a prayer meeting, a piece of music. Over time, the frequency increased as I learned patterns of prayer and spiritual practice. Eventually, decades later, it stabilised into an almost daily occurrence. I discovered the Western mystical tradition, a historical lineage that makes sense of what I was sensing and to which I could belong. I made myself at home with Augustine of Hippo, Julian of Norwich, Ignatius of Loyola, Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, Thomas Merton. My new extended family was large and varied. They became my friends and spiritual guides. I had a history. When I think of the creatives I know, the artists, writers, actors and musicians I have spent time with, I notice that for many of them, their art is a response to the tragedy of life. But I rarely judge their work on the loneliness and pain that drives their compulsion to create. All too often, it is the aching that lingers just under the surface of their work that makes it poignant and affecting. It is not just the beauty of what they create that moves me to tears. It's the heartbreak out of which it is composed. My spiritual journey seems somewhat similar a creative enterprise launched and sustained by a new insight into the nature of the world. Faith is more like a new way of seeing than a new set of propositions to believe. If I'd been happy and fitted seamlessly into the fabric of social life, I doubt I'd have been open to the experience or able to recognise it when it occurred. But just as we might hesitate to reduce an artist's work to little more than psychological self-help, I find myself increasingly reluctant to view my spiritual history as just an expression of my own neurosis. There is another way to tell the story, one that emphasises not so much the problems that drove me to God, but the presence that drew me to him. There is more to the story than my own neediness, and in the final analysis, when the zombie apocalypse comes, at least I have retained sufficient sanity to avoid the guy with the Bible. Bell says, I just love Justine Toe's piece on Simone Vile. I must have read it five or six times by now. Eighty years after Vile's death, Justine brings her wisdom back into sharp focus. In many ways, our attention is the final frontier. 
Our thoughts are a currency in and of themselves. And I think that's why I found Justine's article to be such a breath of fresh air. There are a lot of things vying for our attention, but this article is truly worthy of it. I promise. Your Attention is the Rarest and Purest Form of Generosity by Justine Toe. Your attention is a fragile thing. Trouble is, we only learn this after it's been frayed, as realised by anyone who's ever emerged bleary-eyed and regretful from watching one too many Instagram reels. Not that our inability to look away is entirely on us. In an attention economy, trillions of dollars are to be made through exploiting our attention. It's why some, like social critic Matthew Crawford, call upon us to preserve the attentional commons by treating attention as a public good, like fresh air and clean water. His point, let's use the not-so-renewable resource of our attention wisely. Be careful about what you pay attention to. If you struggle with sustained focus, and given corporate assaults upon it daily, how could you not, then it's even more vital that you, well attend to the life and work of Simone Weil. The French philosopher, labour activist and not-quite-Catholic mystic wrote passionately about the importance of attention and even the miracle of its occurrence when directed deeply and lovingly towards another person. Reading Weil against the chronic distraction of our times, the real product flogged by that attention economy, makes clear that even 80 years after her death, they couldn't be more relevant. Faye's life was short and difficult, often by choice. She grew up the younger sister of math prodigy André Vey in a comfortably middle-class, non-observant Jewish family in Paris. She had a first-rate education that set her up for a fairly cushy life as a teacher. But an encounter with then-classmate Simone de Beauvoir suggests a saint-in-waiting quality to the teenage Vey. Ever the idealist, she desired to feed the world's starving millions. De Beauvoir, who recalls the exchange in her biography, was disinterested, finding the meaning of mankind's existence was more important. She declared, "'It's easy to see you've never gone hungry,' retorted Vey. They weren't empty words either. They often did go hungry, out of solidarity with suffering others. Indeed, her refusal to eat more than her French compatriots under occupation likely hastened her death. But for they, ideas needed to be lived and experienced. Her determined attempt to identify deeply with the plight of working people meant she put herself forward for repetitive, fatiguing factory work or manual labour on farms. Even though sickly and clumsy, she often became a liability. There were other misadventures too. Frustrated attempts to assist the Republican cause in the Spanish Civil War and later the French Resistance during World War II. Few of these endeavours were fruitful, but they was nothing if not committed to doing something, anything. Even if the outcome was uncertain, 
and one wasn't exactly fit for the task. It is in vague writing about attention that we glimpse perhaps something of what drove her to put herself at the frequently extreme disposal of other people and causes she fervently believed in. In a now famous essay on school studies, they makes a startling claim. The point of school is to teach us to pray, by which she meant to attend deeply to whatever is before you. The idea was that students would apply themselves to an endeavour that wouldn't reveal its secrets so easily. As they saw things, wrestling with algebra and trying to follow its impossible logic simultaneously flexed and trained, if you like, our attentional muscles. Even if the equation was still impenetrable after an hour, this apparently barren effort, they declared, would still bring more light into the soul. Teaching students to persist through difficulty, she believed, would pay off far beyond the mastery of any school subject. It would, in fact, prepare people for the real business of life, paying attention to other people. Not least because, as we learn soon enough, they can be way more infuriating than maths. Even though they casts attention as prayer, God wasn't to be the singular object of our attention. The plight of our neighbours was also to fill our gaze. For they, to attend well to other people, meant making their welfare and well-being central to our concerns and bestowing on them the honour, love and dignity they were due. It meant granting them the strange compliment of being real or being a real person in the way we experience ourselves as real people and then putting our own real selves at their disposal. This is why they called attention the rarest and purest form of generosity. It required the attentive person to, in a vivid phrase borrowed from Pope Francis, remove our sandals before the sacred ground of the other. But the power of this attentive gaze goes still further. It has the power to rehumanize the dehumanized. As Vey writes, the love of our neighbor in all its fullness simply means being able to say to him, what are you going through? It is a recognition that the sufferer exists not only as a unit in a collection or a specimen from the social category labelled unfortunate, but as a man exactly like us who was one day stamped with a special mark by affliction. The experience of suffering and misfortune seems to exile someone from the rest of humanity, to undo them in some essential way that strips them of their humanness. They would go on to describe such a state as one of affliction, one she experienced firsthand as a factory worker. In a letter known as Spiritual Autobiography, she writes of the exhausting and gruelling nature of the work. There I received forever the mark of a slave, like the branding of the red-hot iron which the Romans put on the foreheads of their most despised slaves. Affliction, then, is the person reduced to a thing by the experience of suffering and oppression. But here is the transformative power of attention. 
It is precisely what enables someone to recognise that the afflicted other is a person exactly like us. Take, for instance, Vile's reading of Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, a tale perhaps broadly familiar to some. It describes an act of unexpected and radical compassion by a Samaritan, a social and ethnic outsider, to a Jewish man, robbed and left for dead. Christian commentators often pay close attention to the attentive care the Samaritan shows to the beaten man. For them, the true test of the Samaritan's neighbourliness. But Vey has a different focus. For her, the critical moral act was the fact that the Samaritan paid attention. He stopped and looked at the man who had become less of a man and nonetheless gave his attention all the same to this humanity which is absent. Fay calls this an act of creative attention that gives our attention to what does not exist. Everything that then follows, the Samaritan pouring oil on the man's wounds, taking him to a place where he will be cared for and paying in advance for his keep, is almost beside the point because it all depended on this first act. To be a neighbour, suggests they, is first of all to see. Perhaps this is why Vey writes that paying attention to the suffering of another is a very rare and difficult thing. It is almost a miracle. It is a miracle. Attention, then, enacts a kind of resurrection because it can bring them almost dead back to life. The power of paying attention is that it can transform a lump of anonymous, misshapen flesh lying by the side of the road into the other person who is exactly like us, the other person who is as real as we are, the person who requires from us all the compassion we would wish to be shown if we were set upon by robbers on a lonely road. We've travelled a long way from where we started, with our difficulty focusing in an age of distraction and the all-too-familiar experience of giving our attention, which, as they has taught us, also means giving ourselves to things that don't always deserve it. But our own travails with attention have much to learn from Vey's account of the moral, political and spiritual charge of attention. For one, she illuminates for us the determined inattention of our time. Our entire attention economy is organised around helping us avoid the demands of other people. How many of us have retreated to the comfort of our screens to soothe our social anxiety or to numb the guilt we feel at failing to show up for people? It turns out that the loss of our focus and ability to concentrate is just the tip of the attentional iceberg. Also at stake is our ability to be present to the people we love and even to be present to ourselves and our pain. Beyond that, there are many contemporary equivalents to the man of Jesus' parable, first afflicted by suffering and then afflicted by the ease with which that suffering can be ignored. I write from Australia in the recent aftermath of a defeated referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament, 
an invitation issued from the nation's first peoples to their fellow citizens to see their unique circumstances and grant them representation over policy matters directly affecting them. Lives are in the balance. The life outcomes of Aboriginal people are drastically worse than other Australian citizens. Now, to the loss of language, culture, country and pride comes a further blow. They will not be listened to either. They are not the only people we struggle to see. The lady with Alzheimer's disease, the illegal immigrant, the victim of family violence, the modern-day child slaves forced to mine cobalt to power our smartphones. It is profoundly difficult and costly for us to see them and recognise their claims upon us. To love others as Jesus once enjoined his followers as we love ourselves. The vulnerable have always risked being overlooked and ignored. But Vey gives us eyes to see all of this and asks that we do not look away. Those who are unhappy have no need for anything in this world, she writes, but people capable of giving them their attention. Bell concludes, Finally, as a Jane Austen fan, Beatrice Scudler's Mr Darcy pagan hero piece was a pure treat. It's charming and witty and pure escapism. It was also incredibly intriguing. I suddenly found myself pondering the complex role that morality plays in some of Austen's greatest works. This piece is just a pure delight. Mr. Darcy, Pagan Hero, by Beatrice Scudler. For as long as I can remember, I've been interested in how Jane Austen thinks about morality and how she uses the characters in her novels to explore the ideas about what it means to be ethical or virtuous. Virtue is a word not particularly popular in our contemporary society, is what all her characters must attain if they are to be happy. But which virtues exactly take priority is a matter that remains up for debate. When I first read British philosopher Gilbert Ryle's piece on Austen, Jane Austen and the Moralists, I began to seriously question whether her heroes and heroines exhibit virtues which are more distinctly secular or Christian. Ryle argues that Austen's virtue ethics follows the Aristotelian tradition. For Aristotle, virtue consists in finding the golden mean between a lack of equality and an excess of it. For example, courage is the virtue in between cowardice, which is a lack of courage, and rashness, an excess of courage. Similarly, Austen's characters must find a balance, for instance, between Eleanor's excessive reserve and Marianne's excessive feeling in Sense and Sensibility. So far, so good. But Ryle's take is that while Austen was most likely genuinely pious in her own life, especially as the dutiful daughter of a clergyman, her ethics remain essentially secular rather than presenting an evolved, Christianized version of Aristotle's virtue ethics. 
Ryle notes that Austin's heroines and heroes are rarely seen discussing religion or praying, and thus leaves the question at that. The more I thought of Ryle's explanation, the less convinced I was by it. So I started wondering, can we really think of Mr Darcy, the most beloved of Austen's male protagonists, as an essentially pagan hero? Or, in contrast to that, can his narrative arc better be compared to Dante's spiritual pilgrimage in the Divine Comedy? Let's test these two possibilities by looking at which virtues Mr Darcy practices and learns in Pride and Prejudice. From the very beginning of the novel, Mr Darcy acts the part of the ideal Aristotelian hero. He is magnanimous, that is, neither too vain nor too timid, generous without being excessively so, and careful in all his actions. Rash characters such as Lydia and occasionally even his own sister Georgiana are described as acting with imprudence. On the other hand, Elizabeth Bennet confesses to her sister Jane that she believes Charlotte Lucas, in accepting Mr Collins's marriage proposal, has acted with excessive prudence, which becomes tantamount to selfishness. Not so for Mr Darcy, who is prudent in the right way and to the right extent. And then we come to the crux of the problem, that is, pride. While all the qualities I have listed above are pagan virtues, which Christians have historically had no trouble accepting, pride stands apart as a distinctly pagan virtue. For Aristotle, pride was entirely acceptable. While the excess of pride, hubris, is undesirable, pride is positively laudable when it consists in the acknowledgement of one's accomplishments. Aristotle believed humility, on the other hand, a key virtue to Christians, to be symptomatic of a deficiency of truthfulness. For the first half of Pride and Prejudice, at least, Mr Darcy is in perfect agreement with Aristotle on these points. While Elizabeth is staying at Netherfield, he remarks that while vanity is indeed a vice, pride where there is a real superiority of mind, pride will always be under good regulation. Elizabeth's reaction is telling. Not only does she disagree with Mr Darcy in that she lists pride as a weakness of mind, but she responds to his confident assertion by turning away to hide a smile. Her sarcastic smile is a hint of the reproach that will find its full expression following Mr Darcy's first marriage proposal. After insulting her family and reminding her of his superiority of character and station in life, Mr Darcy is firmly chastised by Elizabeth, who freely admits that his manner has impressed her with the fullest belief of your arrogance, your conceit and your selfish disdain of the feelings of others. The entire proposal scene is one of the most elegantly crafted clashes of virtues in fiction. Here is the hero of the story, perfect in every pagan virtue of character, being confronted by the heroine with the truth that he substantially lacks in the one virtue that would distinguish him as Christian, humility. I am struck 
by how much this proposal scene mirrors Dante's meeting with Beatrice at the very end of Purgatory in the Divine Comedy. Up until this point, Dante has been led through hell and purgatory by Virgil, but, lacking the Christian faith, Virgil cannot enter heaven. Although Virgil has been both father and mother to Dante, who has relied on him unconditionally, by the end of purgatory, he must leave Dante's side and be surpassed by Beatrice. Virgil's guidance as an impeccable paragon of pagan virtue is simply not sufficient in the final stage of Dante's spiritual growth. Virgil, having silently departed, Dante finally sets eyes on Beatrice, expecting a happy reunion after not seeing her for years following her death. Instead, she is peremptory and unsentimental in her greeting. Look here, for I am Beatrice. I am. She is reproaching him for not remaining constant to her memory after her death. Instead of letting his love for her lead him to a greater love of God, she says, Dante allowed himself to become distracted by worthless intellectual pursuits. Dante feels the bitter savour of her sternness, but he knows that she is right in chiding his intellectual pride. He confesses his past sins, and only then is he truly prepared to enter heaven. Now, if Pride and Prejudice ended with the proposal scene I described, Gilbert Ryle would be correct in suggesting that Austen's characters, or at least her male protagonist, are virtuous in an essentially secular and pagan way. But this is not the case. Instead, exactly what happens to Dante happens to Mr Darcy. Like Beatrice's chiding, Elizabeth's refusal and scolding lead Darcy to repent and learn humility. By the time Darcy proposes a second time, his attitude has changed entirely. He no longer values pride as the chief indicator of virtue, and thus he has become much more explicitly Christian in his way of exercising virtue. After Elizabeth has accepted his marriage proposal, he confesses to her, I have been a selfish being all my life, in practice, though not in principle. As a child I was taught what was right, but I was not taught to correct my temper. I was given good principles, but left to follow them in pride and conceit. I was spoiled by my parents, who, though good themselves, allowed, encouraged, almost taught me to be selfish and overbearing. To think meanly of their sense and worth compared with my own. Such I was, and such I might still have been, but for you, dearest, loveliest Elizabeth, what do I not owe you? You taught me a lesson hard indeed at first, but most advantageous. By you, I was properly humbled. Just as Dante was reminded that he must confess and repent of past pride by Beatrice, so Mr Darcy is properly humbled by Elizabeth. Humility thus becomes central to the resolution of pride and prejudice, for without it there could have been no reconciliation between hero and heroine, no marriage at the end. 
although Mr. Darcy may not be seen kneeling to pray or declaring his love of God, the deepening of his virtues as a Christian is what ensures the forgiveness of the woman he loves. He may be the perfect pagan hero when the novel begins, but by the end, he becomes the Christian hero we all know and love. Thank you for listening to Seen and Unseen Aloud. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If so, perhaps there's someone you're in touch with in the new year who might enjoy it too. Maybe you could share it with them. Wherever you are and whatever 2024 looks like for you, from all at Seen and Unseen Aloud, we hope in this new year you discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined. <laughs>